0: Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Hello and welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast. Today I'm talking to Professor Greg Malouche and Dr Zachary Gorman. And Greg is the Robert Menzies Institute's first professorial fellow. In addition, he is a professor in the School of Humanities and Social Inquiry at the University of Wollongong, and is one of Australia's leading experts on Australian liberalism and conservatism. And Zach Gorman is... I'm sure very well known to all of you. He is the Academic Coordinator of the Robert Menzies Institute. A pleasure to have you both here on the Afternoon Light podcast.
1: Hello. Pleasure to be here.
0: And, it, and it's a debut for both of you on the podcast and I hope um, one to be repeated many times over, particularly as both of you are undertaking... A fascinating project on the Forgotten Forgotten People speeches, about which um, we will speak more in the future. But the topic of today's discussion is state aid. And this has been a a vexed political issue for centuries in Australia, when I was reading the history. So I wondered if you could start our discussion, and perhaps we'll go to you first, Greg, on the history of state aid in Australia.
1: Well... In 19th century Australia, in the colonial period, the colonial governments decided that they wanted to introduce compulsory primary education in particular, and they then had to decide how they were going to do it. Now, I know more about New South Wales than the other states, but initially in New South Wales what they did was they funded what were called denominational schools. These were schools run by religious organisations, churches, Um, and other private schools as well. So that was their initial model. And then in the 1880s, when they introduced full compulsory education, they decided that rather than fund denominational schools, they would instead set up a state system, again, primarily primary schools. There were some secondary schools, but they weren't free at the time. Um, And they would defund the denominational schools. Now, there were reasons for them doing this, by the way, uh, one of them of which was funding denominational schools was much more expensive than setting up your own system. colonial governments didn't have masses of money. But the biggest problem was that around about a quarter of population in New South Wales and Victoria, not so much in South Australia, were Catholics. And Catholics would not accept a secular, state-run school system. And what the colonial government tried to do was to say, all right, the schools will be secular in nature, but you can bring in your religious person originally once a day if need be, but generally once a week, and that will give the religious part of the schooling. Now, the Catholics wouldn't accept this. They said, no, you can't separate out the two parts of the schooling in this sort of way. It was a very Protestant way of solving the problem. And all the Protestant denominations, even the Church of England, accepted it, uh, but the Catholics refused to do so uh, it's interesting also with the South Australian um, emphasis here my understanding is that the Lutherans also kept their their own schools so it wasn't just the Catholics and the consequence of this was that the Catholic schools then had to run without any state aid while the rest of the population were educated by and large apart from other private schools where more affluent could pay fees, educated in state schools where they wouldn't have to pay. Now, this imposed an enormous burden on the Catholic community because they weren't rich, by and large, and funding education was a big, big cost. And they also complained, particularly in the early part of the 20th century, that this was also very, very unfair because they were paying taxes, but they weren't getting the benefits of the education. So they were in a sense being double taxed. They were having to pay for their own schools, and they were having to pay for other people's schools as well. So they they definitely thought it was very, very unfair. But it had it had enormous implications for the particularly the parish schools under the Catholic system because. Now, how, how, how were they to be run? Well, they were largely run by teaching orders by nuns and people like the Christian Brothers, which, of course, the church didn't have to pay because they were parts of religious orders. But even then, the consequences over time were large classes and quality of education. So the Catholic community, quite rightly, I think, felt gutted by the, the way that the education system worked out.
0: I wonder how much this sort of mid-19th century view about dictating the the ways these schools were set up. So the Catholic Church obviously rejected the offer of you're allowed a priest once a week. <laughs> um, mm. No, they've said they want the schools run in a particular way according to... to presumably uh, some uh, understanding of, of Catholic education that differed from the way the government was prescribing it. But was that to do with sort of Enlightenment secularism or was that more a sectarianism by stealth, <laughs> do you
1: think? There, there was a concern within elements of the Catholic hierarchy about the corroding influence of the liberals. Uh, there was a papal encyclical, I think, sometime in the 1840s or 50s that denounced liberalism. But to be fair, Australian Catholics were generally quite democratic, quite liberal in their outlook. They weren't sort of hardcore anti-enlightenment, but they did understand that they had a distinctive religious outlook and that it would be very difficult to get their children to follow this outlook within a secular state school system that was... Yeah. But there was also sectarianism as well. There was a degree of sectarianism involved. And, of course, the sectarianism, it wasn't just religious. It was ethnic as well because, obviously, the majority of the Catholics were Irish.
2: And I think part of the push for secularisation was throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So you had this church-based system of education that was quite inadequate Um, When it was first set up, it was quite sort of enlightened in its own way because Richard Burke, who was governor of New South Wales in the 1830s, who was actually a distant cousin of Edmund Burke, he deliberately went about not establishing the Anglican Church as the official religion in New South Wales in the manner it was established in Great Britain. Instead, he wanted to give funding to all the various Christian denominations based on how many people they had. And that sort of fed into the education system, which was very much run by the churches. But as that education system proved inadequate, the people who were pushing for innovation sort of wanted to completely distance themselves from the existing system and create this um, new secular system. Um, It didn't really help in New South Wales that the secular education push was being driven by Henry Parks, who had a pretty bad reputation as far as sectarianism is concerned. He's uh, connected with his infamous speech about the Chiama ghost. And the other thing to mention is that free compulsory and secular education is a bit like the old quip about the Holy Roman Empire. It wasn't free. There were residual fees, particularly when it came to high schools that lasted um, for a very long time. It wasn't compulsory by our standards. The initial legislation required about 70 days of schooling throughout the entire year. And it explicitly wasn't secular. Not only did you have um, visiting clergy and priests and so on, but there were elements pervasive throughout the curriculum that were based on sort of Christian ethics and Christian tenets that were deliberately sort of skewed to be non-denominational Christian ethics and Christian tenets, which for Catholics was inherently a sort of Protestant Christian ethics. And Joseph Carruthers, who I wrote a biography of, who was the last minister for public instruction in the last Parks government, he was very insistent for the rest of his life, even on his deathbed, he was writing a letter to the editor of the Sydney Morning Herald that it was not secular education. It was just non-sectarian, non-denominational education. It was still pervasively religious.
1: Mm. This may sound odd to us, but one of the issues was actually reading the Bible.
0: Oh, right, because the Bibles were a bit different.
1: No, not because the Bible. Well, the Bibles are slightly different, but the Catholics thought that you can't have these lay people reading the Bible to students in a secular setting. The Bible has to be read with clerical supervision. The Anglicans thought this as well, but they, they actually were willing to give in. But the, these are things that seem arcane to us, but at the time, they were extremely important. They were extremely important.
0: Yeah, and um, it it's really interesting how the movement against state aid for religious schools starts so long ago. I I think, you know... I've been surprised reading this um, history. I thought that the sort of movement against tax breaks for churches and, and you know, support for the religious schools, Catholic schools, Protestant schools was a, a sort of a, ni- a 1970s phenomenon. Uh, but actually this was with us in the 19th century in quite an organised fashion, wasn't it?
1: Yes. It was part of the problem of having in Australia... That was composed of people from different religious backgrounds. Now, people tell you, "Oh, you know, they were all British." Well, they weren't all British. There were Scottish Presbyterians. There were English Anglicans, Nonconformists. Uh, there were Welsh and. Um, Methodists, uh, and, of course, there were Irish Catholics. So, and the Lutherans
0: coming from... And, the, and, yeah.
1: and we always forget the Lutherans. Yeah. The Lutherans well,
0: I grew up in the Adelaide Hills, so I, I know the Lutherans very well. <laughs> of
1: course. Yes. Oh, my daughter, <laughs> my older daughter went to a Lutheran school in Brisbane for three years, so <laughs> I know something about the Lutherans. But they remained hidden from view. So the real problem was how, and in a way you could say that when they came together to uh, solve the education problem as it was in the 1880s, it made sense to them, particularly from an economic point of view, and I think parks like the fact that it was cheaper doing it this way, Uh, but it didn't solve the larger social issues and the consequences of that, which in a way remained with Australia for the next 70 or 80 years. And you know how Paul Kelly talks about the Australian settlement mm. and various policies? In a way, secular education was an established policy like other aspects. It wasn't done at the federal level. But at the state level, it was an established policy, which meant that it was very, very, very difficult to break that established policy. It was like trying to break white Australia. It was very embedded into Australian culture, I think, just as sectarianism was embedded in Australian culture for that period as well. And, of course, the two worked together. The separate school systems made sectarianism worse.
0: Yes, I can imagine because it really it entrenched it the worse. division.
2: Yeah, But oh. at the same time, I would add that it was a matter of um, identity and pride and culture and so many of these th- um key ideas for the Irish Catholics, like that the point of free compulsory and secular education was to have this homogenous education system that would create um, very equal, very homogenised students that didn't have these sort of separate identities. And I think it's a big step in Australia becoming a plural society that even in the 19th century there was already a section in Australian society that wanted what in effect is a form of multiculturalism wanted to be able to protect distinct identity and it's not inherently a negative thing it fed into negative things and I think particularly one of the reasons that's the opposition to state aid or state aid becoming a policy issue that you couldn't touch was very much um, tied to sectarianism because the issue was never judged on its merits after the Public Instruction Acts of the 1870s and 1880s. It became so integrally associated with the fact that if you did introduce or reintroduce state aid, the vast majority of that money would go to Irish Catholic schools because they were the ones, along with the Lutherans and these smaller denominations that we shouldn't forget... But certainly in statistical terms, it was the Catholics who had stuck to their guns in keeping their own schools.
1: And and you have to accept it was an heroic, really heroic task Mm. to provide education for a relatively poor community because the consequences of this over time were large classes and the quality of education in some of the Catholic schools, its admitted, wasn't necessarily all that great. But they were determined they were going to, as Zach says, they were going to maintain their identity. And the other thing that's really interesting about it is that a lot of Catholics came to vote Labor, and yet the Labor Party was one of the strongest opponents of state aid. Uh, they didn't want to give it either. And, and you know, I think particularly before the First World War, when there was a Labor government in New South Wales, Catherine was quite upset that the Labor government wouldn't do anything.
0: Yeah, I want to get to this, you know, massive issue for for Labor in the 60s because it, it's a fascinating story, the sort of the battle between Joe Chamberlain, Arthur Corwell, and Gough Whitlam, of course, who, who ends up becoming Labor leader and Prime Minister. But, you know, by the skin of his teeth. Um, anyway, we will get to that. But there is bipartisan commitment to no state aid for Catholic schools, for religious schools, until we get to Menzies. And I'd be interested in your views on, and how how did Menzies come to change his mind, presumably, on on this issue?
1: Well, I don't know if he changed his mind because the broadcast he gave in 1943 was actually quite sympathetic to the idea of funding church schools, and he could see the benefit of religious education. He thought, well, this was actually quite good, and he was concerned. I was rereading the, the broadcast this morning i think he was concerned that with a labour government that because if there the labour government continued there'd be an expansion of bureaucracy and government doing things taxation would go up and that people would not be able to afford church schools because they you know would have a big impact on on their their their, their capacities to to actually afford it um, so he he was you know it's quite interesting in 1943 he's, he's again quite quite sympathetic to to the idea now the thing is that education was a state issue yeah so the yeah. capacity of the federal government to intervene in education doesn't really come about until the 1946 referendum in the social security where they say things to fund students which gives the commonwealth power before that when he's talking at a federal level he's not really talking about the Commonwealth or the Australian government actually doing anything because it's not really in their, in their sphere?
2: And it's interesting that this consistency of Menzies in support of state aid has been completely forgotten. It doesn't exist in the historical record. I was reading an Inside Story article that was quite a detailed article on the Catholic school strike and certainly Labor's um, issues with state aid, and it was written in 2016, and it was adamant that Menzies had no personal interest in state aid, that it was entirely it's sort of political opportunism, um, his adoption of it. Um, but at the time when Menzies makes this broadcast in '43, it's front-page news of the Catholic Weekly the next week, and even months later the Catholic Weekly is still sort of talking about Menzies' support for state aid. And one of the um, lines in the broadcast, um, Menzies is talking about that education, divorce from religion, is not only... Incomplete, but it may actively be dangerous, which is a very interesting point of view for someone making this broadcast during the Second World War. And one of the things why Menzies develops this view that education is so important, and uh, that liberal education in particular is so important, is because he sees that with the atrocities of the First and Second World Wars, a. the world has made such great strides as far as mechanical and material education and the ability to do things. But what hasn't come along with that is what he sort of dubs a spiritual um, education or the higher things of the mind so that the ability to actually wield that power responsibly isn't there. So that ties in with his idea that he sort of wants religious schooling to continue to exist and not just exist but flourish more than it has without state aid because he is really concerned about this Frankenstein monster that may yet destroy us, as he describes material progress at the time.
0: Did you have anything to add there, Greg?
1: I agree with Zach on this on this point that um, Menzies does have an appreciation of the need for education to be more than just training mm. and that religion is, if you go through his his writings, he's very positive about the role of religion in morals yeah and the interesting thing just coming back to what we were talking about before about how it was a, a Protestant thing in the 1880s saying all church schools he's not saying just the Protestant schools so he's not he he's not sectarian he's saying that, that the various religions have a positive role to play in the moral formation of people.
0: And, and that's I think a really important part of of Menzie's legacy that that lives with us today is that he really you know he's he's criticized by his opponents ideological opponents mainly um for being very conservative and you know they're of course, the sort of Clive James, Jermaine Greer critique of him that he you know, held Australia back, part of the cultural cringe. But he led Australia out of entrenched sectarianism, and he led Australia in a very progressive way. In that sense, in that he was yes. he was well ahead of his contemporaries, his um, his sort of Protestant colleagues, even family members were quite affronted by some of Menzies. Um, statements on on you know being anti-sectarian which you know is a is a gift to australia really through a period that could have otherwise gone a very different
2: way yeah his family actually yeah. holds a family meeting after he appears on a platform with archbishop manix in 1928 so the whole family is rousing on him because he's a member of the legislative council and he's very insistent that he's got to represent everyone in his community not just the protestant members of his community
1: the other thing is that in the 1950s, um, no, we, we have this narrative about the ALP being the party of progress, but if you actually go back to the 1950s and early 60s, on areas like state aid and white Australia, uh, you'll find that the, the, the ALP was far more conservative than, than Menzies was. He wasn't the conservative one. And if you compare him, for example, with Arthur Corwell, Arthur Corwell is possibly the most conservative political leader this country has seen. You no, know, people don't quite we, – we, we write history as if, you know, Labor's always on the side of progress and the Liberals are always on the side of reaction. But once you contextualise things, things look quite different.
0: Yeah, and I think that that is partly to do with the fact that, um, the history of Labor is seen through the prism of its prime ministers rather than all its leaders. So they didn't have a prime minister in the 50s and 60s. So the Labor leader they looked to is Whitlam and Whitlam's views were very different, obviously, from Corwell's. And so that legacy is slightly lost of the Corwell era. Um, I wanted to go to the Goulburn um, Catholic School Strike, and Zach, you've written about this recently, it was um, the subject of a an On This Day post that you produced, I think it's the 16th of July, is yeah, that the right? Yeah,
2: the 16th of July, it's... <laughs> um, 1962?
0: 1962,
2: so it's we've just had the 60th anniversary, and it really is the Catholic School Strike is just the catalyst, it's all this pent-up frustration as Menzies predicted in '43, things had gotten a lot worse after um, World War II as far as the ability of Catholic schools to sustain themselves because you have this huge um, booming population with new waves of immigration, many of which are Catholic. There was um, the Italian immigration in the early post-war period was particularly controversial explicitly because it was Catholic. There were loyal Orange Lodges and these sorts of organisations lobbying the Menzies government that they shouldn't let so many Italians in. So you've got that combined with the post-war baby boom, combined with the rise of the need to teach science and technology and all these more technical skills that basically relying on nuns and brothers and these cheap, essentially free forms of labour that was the main way in which the Catholic schools had been able to self-fund. It wasn't going to cut it anymore. No. So it was really bringing these points to a head in the Catholic school strike that long maintained that it was not fair that they had to pay taxes for a schooling system that they did not get to have the benefit of. But also this argument that is one of the ones that really resonates today and it's um, in the modern debates about funding for independent schools is the fact of the matter is if you're not going to pay any money to keep afloat these schools that cater to sort of middle-class people or even lower middle-class people and working-class people in the case of many Catholic schools, then the state is going to have to fund all of the education of uh These people, And that's going to be a far bigger cost. And that was really the whole point of the school strike was these six Catholic schools in the Goulburn area with the support of the um, Bishop of the Goulburn-Canberra area, they all closed down on the same date and 2,000 students showed up on the doors of the public schools and they were completely overwhelmed. Only 640 found places. And even that was just they found places by turning the public schools into the equivalent of the overcrowded um, Catholic schools, that there just wasn't enough space. It was financially impossible for the public system to cope. And that's still the argument today, that you just have to keep the independent schools alive for the benefit not only of choice and pluralism and all these things that you get out of having a diverse system, but also just from the simple mathematics of it.
0: So tell me, Bishop John Cullinane the auxiliary bishop of Canberra, Goulburn, who authorised the closure of these six Catholic schools in Goulburn. Um, and this was all over, <laughs> apparently the state government had been insisting for several years that a toilet block or toilet, it's, there's a bit of a argument over whether it was the whole block or just a single toilet um, at the local Catholic primary school had to be improved upon and they just had no money to do that. So, so was this Bishop Cullinane's Brinkmanship was this his intention to bring this all to a head or was it just really you know that that there's just nothing more to be done did it, he did he predetermine there's, this there's,
2: <laughs> there's brinkmanship it's not just the catholic hierarchy it's a real grassroots catholic movement uh, Goulburn is a area at the time that has a particularly large catholic population It's something like 36% and it's a big public meeting that approves the strike so there's just just overwhelming frustration that's coming to a head and I think it's interesting that it is in this area of Goulburn which is so close to Canberra that it is sharing the same church hierarchy because that is where the Menzies government first experiments with um, little uh, areas of state aid particularly when it comes to funding science blocks is in the ACT where it has its full jurisdiction and it's not inhibited by the constitution.
1: I think also the thing that's important here, you have a, a, a population growth, uh, Catholic population growth. The, the, the Catholic population had actually been stable up to World War Two, or slightly declining. And then with the migration, it started growing again. The demography was had changed. And, of course, uh, 1962, remember, uh, is also the year of Vatican II, which is symbolic in a way because what I think also is arising at the time of the strike is the fact that the, the nuns and the brothers, that their numbers are beginning to decline. There's a real problem staffing this Catholic schools as well. So the classes are blowing out, I think, to about 60 in, oh. in in some cases. You have these huge classes and you've got a problem with not just the growth but the possible also the decline of teaching staff and how are you going to fund the teaching staff as well? So in a way, I think the toilet block becomes symbolic of a wider, a wider. It's a good, it's a good one to do, isn't it? That's a good way to handle it. Yeah. Uh, the other thing about 1962, it's the year they introduced the Wyndham scheme in New South Wales. So the education system in New South Wales, particularly at secondary level, changes in 1962. An extra year of high school was introduced. There's a bigger emphasis on science than there had been in the past. So the early sixties is this sort of time when education, there is a lot of change going on, which I think brings this to a head.
0: And, and at that time, Greg, we have a state Labor government, don't we, in in New South Wales? Mm-hmm. So the Menzies government's been in power since 1949, so for, for 13 years or 12 and a half years by this stage, entrenched at a federal level, but it's a state Labor government in New South Wales and New South Wales Labor uh, becomes embroiled in this Catholic school strike in Goulburn and we have the most extraordinary set of... <laughs> <laughs> debates um, in caucus. So can you talk us through how state aid became particularly divisive for, for Labor in the 1960s? Well, the, the
1: state government, it's not opposed to state aid. It wants to do state aid. But it's told by the, the federal executive the Labor Party that that's not Labor policy. Mm. You can't do it. So they're caught. I mean, this is a government. I mean, you talk about an entrenched government. They've been there since
2: the 40s do 41. And
1: they have, you know, this is a government that's been there longer than Menzies has, and largely it, because of the split didn't happen in New South Wales, there wasn't, you know, what happened in Victoria with the DLP and so on, it's still largely a Catholic Labor government. Mm. So they're caught between a rock and a hard place about what they can do. They don't, I think the problem here is they don't have the flexibility to change policy because of the way that the Labor Party sort of set its policies in stone.
2: Labor's also dealing with the fallout of the Great Labor Split and the sectarian undercurrents of the Great Labor Split are, are very latent, that in Victoria in particular, it is not all the Catholics leave the Labor Party, but a huge proportion of the Catholics within the Labor movement set up the DLP. And... There's an element, um, certainly in Joe Chamberlain, even though he's not a Victorian, he's um, from West Australia, there's an element of just outright revenge in blocking any policy change in in the case of New South Wales. It's cutting off your nose to spite your face because New South Wales is this one area, this one state in which Labor has maintained its relationship with the Catholic voting population. And you have these outsiders not from New South Wales bringing in all the vitriol from the split that is going on elsewhere and essentially blowing up Catholic Labor vote in New South Wales because in the 1963 election uh, where Menzies has this swing back to the government after almost losing in 1961, all those seats, seven out of the ten that he wins, are in New South Wales. So it's this poison that's going through the Labor Party that New South Wales had avoided, um, but because it is in the very nature of the Labor Party to have centralised administration, to not have subsidiarity and let decisions be made on the local level, that it all comes apart. And so in
0: 1966, we go to the um, Labor's um, National Advisory Committee on Education and Joe Chamberlain, who's a Labor federal power broker, and then Arthur Corwell, who's also on this committee, they, they sort of Bash it out, don't they? What What's Labor's policy?
2: Yeah, Corwell doesn't know what he wants the policy to be. He can mm. he can see the electoral advantages um, to moving towards a pro-state aid position, but then he is dealing with power brokers and important people who are absolutely against this ever possibly happening. And it is something that Golf Whitlam is ultimately able to use as a wedge to sort of not only um, drive support away from Callwell, but very much paint himself as an in- innovator. And a lot of the the things that we associate um, with Whitlam, as far as crash or crash through, was initially directed not at his approach. Um, his disastrous approach to federal politics, but rather his approach to dealing with the Labor um, faceless men themselves and getting change through an archaic organisational system that really hated change.
1: It's ironic in a way, isn't it, when you think about it, that you have to give credit to both of them. Uh, The two men who did most to get state aid up was a Presbyterian, Menzies, and what would you call Whitlam, perhaps? He, well, he went to St Paul, so he might be a nominal Anglican, whereas the Labor Catholics were unable to resolve it. <laughs> yeah. it. It's a very, when you think about it, it is a very, you know, it's strange the way political life works, isn't it?
0: Yeah, there are there are mysteries uh, that abound. <laughs> but it's often the case, though, that where you don't have your own vested interest in something, you you then have the, the ability to to push through very significant reform. I mean, they say it was only ever going to be, you know, John Howard who could push against the national party and the farmers to get through gun reform. And anyway, it was Menzies and um, <laughs> Menzies who delivered, <laughs> who delivered state aid, and then and then Whitlam followed through. But tell me, um, tell me, Greg and Zach, Whitlam almost gets expelled from the Labor Party for his support for state aid and and pushing the Labor Party towards a change in in policy on this.
2: Yeah, Yeah. because it has become this sort of symbolic issue. And I think um, initially, if you you want to look back at why Labor was opposed to state aid even before the split, a lot of it has to do with they are so associated um, with Catholicism. The Labor Party has this sort of brand identity issue where particularly after the conscription referendums in World War I and where sectarianism gets very heated because it's ultimately a question of loyalty to the empire, that Labour's already associated itself um, just demographically with Irish Catholics. It doesn't want to then double down on that association, which isn't electorally popular, Um, There are far more votes. This is why Parks appeals to the Kiama There are far more votes to be had in appealing to the Protestant side of the sectarian split.
1: we come just coming back to a sort of related point here that in the 1960s, I think, it's become an issue that Australian education has to be modernised. So some basic changes have to be made and state aid enables that modernization to occur outside the state system by putting money in. Because what's the first thing that are funded? Science blocks. Because in the early 60s, science is seen as, you know, it's going to be the saviour of the future. And, of course, with Zach talked earlier about Menzies and religion and spiritual values. Menzies was also quite supportive of science. He mightn't be been a scientist himself, but he actually saw that science was important so long as it didn't become a religion or it didn't become, you know, soulless. So this, you know, the the expansion, particularly secondary education, it's Menzies and then Whitlam, who were the men of Vision, whereas the old Labor Party is still fighting yesterday's wars. That's the problem, I think. They were still fighting, even in the late 60s, they're still fighting yesterday's wars, whereas... Menzies says, no, sees that, no, if we're going to go look through to the future, then we have to have scientific education. We have to do something about state aid if we're going to deliver a decent sort of uh, education system for the modern world. Mm. And, hey, that means Menzies is not the conservative.
0: No. He's not and, conservative. And, of course, overlaid on this, Greg, is the, the Cold War, isn't it, and that real rush to... Improve the scientific capabilities of the population, not just in Australia but across the, the Western world in the United States, in, in Britain, um, because the, you were seeing millions of science graduates through the USSR and the space race was on and there was a real kind of technological competitiveness there that, that had that geopolitical overlay onto our education system and the reforms that we had to, we had to face.
2: That science angle is something that allows Menzies to cut through the sectarianism and that all that um, distrust around the issue. He's very he's very astute in the fact that the initial state aid is about science blocks. There's also uh, in the as part of the package announced in the lead up to the sixty three election, there's um, scholarships for secondary education that can go to public or private schools. Um, So there are broader aspects to the education, but certainly the big ticket item is the science blocks.
1: Again, people don't quite understand that that Menzies was not opposed to what could be called modernisation of Australia. This this notion that some people put forward that he was sort of living in the old imperial era or something is not true. The thing that strikes me about Menzies coming back early is is his he had a sense of balance. You have science, but you also need to take account of religion as well.
0: Mm, mm.
1: So he has, you know, in the you know the old C.P. Snow two cultures thing. I think he had a very balanced notion of how the two two relate to each other.
0: So. So, Greg and Zach, the last gasp of the opponents to state aid um, tried the legal avenue, didn't they? And um, eventually the – I love this – the dogs, (laughs) the National Council for the Defence of Government Schools, um, the dog, they were a group of teachers, unions and parents um, opposed to state aid. They went to the High Court and opposed federal government's funding of of religious schools uh, uh, under a um, a challenge to the Constitution that was against the Constitution and breached they claimed part of section hundred and sixteen which said that the Commonwealth should not make any law for establishing any religion. So they were arguing that that funding religious schools was against this provision in the Constitution um, because it went against the separation of church and state in Australia. so, they failed here. The High Court found against them six to one that the, the funding was for um, valid educational purposes, not for establishing religion, which seems kind of an obvious point. So I'm surprised the High Court even deigned to hear it. But anyway, it was good that it did because it put put the issue to, to rest. But was that the sort of last gasp then for, for opposition to state aid? I feel like it still bubbles.
2: Uh, the opposition has changed to it being less about religious schools um, and more just about funding private schools in general, and yeah. it, that it you shouldn't be giving any money to private schools. But I think it is interesting, um, the sort of legal history of Section 116. It is a very odd clause in the Australian Constitution. The Australian Constitution doesn't have any sort of bill of rights or any talk about rights, but we've got this section that's included, that's very much borrowed off language from the American Bill of Rights and the First Amendment. And in um, American jurisprudence, that case might have gone very differently because they have a tradition of extrapolating rights um, from their Bill of Rights and ideas like the separation of church and state. Whereas because Section 116 is so non-typical, it's not part of our um, regular sort of constitutional history, constitutional tradition... It's partly introduced purely because of the preamble to the Australian Constitution. And there's the debate in the federal conventions about mentioning Almighty God in the preamble. And people are concerned of the flow on consequences of um, this um, acknowledgement of God, whether that will have any legal consequences. And it's a very um, important issue right now when we're talking about, um, indigenous recognition and the Indigenous voice um, and whether that will have unintended consequences. The framers of the Constitution were quite adamant that you could have unintended consequences for things that are meant to be purely symbolic. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is, it's is—it's quite a um, sort of quirky thing, this whole section in the Constitution and then the um, High Court case, but six to one is a quite um, resounding um, decision and it really speaks to that separate... Constitutional tradition we have compared to the United States. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think it's uncontroversial now. State aid, except for the wealthier private schools, where where elements of the of the left uh, see them as a target. Whether it's whether they, think they can actually do anything, or whether it's just a symbolic way of of, of, of attacking the other side, I, I don't know. As I said, coming back to the Australian settlement, just as we got rid of things like white Australia and the old protectionist regime, um, this outcome um, in terms of funding state schools is a a way of rejecting an older version of Australia, w- which was sectarian, uh, which we didn't give state aid, uh, because by the 1960s it clearly wasn't working.
2: It's also become... It's interesting we talk about the Australian settlement and I think there is a tradition in Australian political history where we don't like to have ongoing debates we'll settle an issue and that'll be settled for decades yeah. and that's that's what's happened with state aid is that once Menzies and then Whitlam introduce it it goes off yeah. the radar and you have for example in the 2004 election you have the Labor Party hit list of all the schools that they're going to take funding away from and it turns out to be an electoral disaster it's it's an issue you can't touch a bit like border protection these days we we settle things and then we move on. Yeah.
0: But, but we're yeah. certainly good at having very long, drawn-out arguments about them. I mean, the, the climate wars has been an, another one. Republicanism in Australia seems to be coming up again. We did have the referendum in 99, but, but you know, the... New Labor governments put in a minister for the Republic. So presumably that's on the target list. And now, and now of course we have the issue of Indigenous reconciliation and, and how that will be manifested. So, so Australia does like to have long, long drawn out debates on, on these issues. But I wonder if you're right, um, Zach, we just settle them and then do we move on? But and I, careful of unintended consequences, of course.
2: I, I think another thing, sorry, just to add is that, um, with that American comparison, we we were a bit on the cutting edge with state aid and allowing for this pluralism and choice in education, because this is a really lively debate in America at the moment about school vouchers and the ability to break the monopoly of the um, public schools and be able to choose where you get to um, send your children to. And we've had this system for 60 years now in Mm. Australia where we've had that choice that people in the United States are currently fighting for. Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I I think the outcome which began with Menzies and was carried through by Whitlam and so on, it's really been quite a satisfactory resolution to what was a major problem. And it's got rid of, it's helped to get rid of the old sectarianism, it's brought justice to people um, who want to send their children to non-government schools who may not be particularly wealthy. It, it's really, I think, you know, what seemed like you know something that was unchangeable, once the breach in the wall was made, the, the wall didn't really take all that long to come down.
0: No, and I think as a, a final reflection, when you look at our, our sort of sister brother countries around the world, um, our education system here is idiosyncratically Australian. You know, it's it's very different mm. from the British yeah. system, very different from the American system, because of the legacy of these of these policy policy choices. And I I think that actually contributes to a much more egalitarian society and, as you said before, Zach, a a pluralistic society. We're generally a pretty happy pluralistic society and cohesive and that ability of parents to to choose and have have the support of the state to make that choice in that these schools can continue to function which otherwise they might not be able to do without some support from the federal government, um, is, is ultimately a good thing. Um, but thank you, thank you so much, Greg. Thank you, Zach. I look thank forward you. to continuing the conversation with all the, the wonderful revelations that, that come from your research into the Forgotten, Forgotten People speeches and, and other issues that surround it. And uh, great to have you on Afternoon Light. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.